My name is Luke Brederton, and this is the Listen, Organise, Act podcast, which focuses on the history and contemporary practice of organising in democratic politics. In this second series, I'm exploring key figures, texts and ideas that organisers and leaders have turned to again and again to inspire shared action and explain the meaning, purpose and character of democratic politics. This episode discusses the work of Saul Alinsky and the different traditions and influences that shaped his vision of community organising. The key texts I discuss are his two books, Reveille for Radicals, published in 1946, and his later book, Rules for Radicals, published in 1971, just before he died. The second book is perhaps the most read and and best known. However, in many ways, I think the first book is more significant. It articulated for the first time what community organising is as a distinct practice. It's also in Reveille for Radicals that Alinsky is most explicit about his constructive vision of democratic politics and why it matters for upholding the dignity of all peoples. I should say that my Focus here is less on Alinsky as an organiser and more on Alinsky as a visionary of small d or participatory democratic politics. The episode itself has two parts. In the first part, I discuss Alinsky, his writings and his legacy with Amanda Tattersall. Amanda directs currently the Policy Lab at Sydney University in Australia. With a background in union organising and movement work, the anti-war movement against the Iraq war, she was inspired by reading Alinsky to set up Sydney Alliance, a community organising coalition in her hometown of Sydney. Since doing that, she has also helped develop a number of other initiatives to craft creative, democratic responses to endemic problems. Amanda, welcome to the Listen, Organise App podcast. It's great to have you on the show. Thanks so much for talking to me. Oh, it's my pleasure, Luke. I'm so delighted to be here. Excellent. So I, I was kind of, part of the reason I wanted to talk to you is because I was intrigued. You told me a story which I'd love to hear more about is how you came across Alinsky in a bookshop in America. <laughs> so I... Just, I'd love to hear, how, how did you come across Alinsky's work and, and what impact did it have on you? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I actually think there's a few steps before my magical moment in a Santa Monica bookshop where I came across Reveille for Radicals. But um, but that was the Chris, the crystallising moment for me. But um, when I was, I, I was a student movement activist, right? I was a mobiliser. I loved protests and um, and demonstrations. And actually I read Rules for Radicals when I was in the heat of that work. Um, and, and even though I was literally the kind of person that book is directed at, it didn't really, it didn't really land for me. It, it just, he sounded grumpy. I didn't really, it wasn't engaged by it. Then I read it again. Um, well, he must've landed a little bit. So I read it again during the protests against the war in Iraq, which I was heavily involved in. Um, and for those listeners who don't know, you know, there were 10 million people who marched around the world in advance of the war, trying to stop the war, but it didn't work, right? And, and in Australia, I was part of organising the largest demonstration in Australia's history, two and a half, um, 250,000 people in Sydney. And I was um, on holidays. It was the end of that year. And, you know, I was still reeling over the fact that we'd not one and what would we do and how do we make change? And I was just in this little Santa Monica bookshop off off the main drag and looking through the 
politics section because <laughs> I should be been looking for novels. But and I found and I found this other book by by Alinsky. And on my holiday, I I read it. It really struck me that that the methodology that I had seen this people's organization approach, it just felt like I could maybe give that a go in in Australia. Can you say a little bit about Alinsky, the man, like, you know, his his background and, and context? Give a, just a kind of little sketch of his biography. Okay. So, you know, in some respects, the guy was a bit of an asshole, right? <laughs> like, you know, he was he was sort of provocative and challenging and push pushy and assertive and um confrontational. Um but I think you know his iconoclastic identity as part of what made him work, you know, like he he would decry the idea of of charismatic ego to leaders, but he kind of was that, and perhaps that's why the IF became what it was able to be while he was alive. But he um he was what I think is interesting about him is how sort of he came through. His family um were were, were Jewish, and so he had a whole expo- not not hugely practicing, but he was still attentive to Jewish Jewish traditions. And he, you know, he, he spent, he studied in Chicago at the University of Chicago. And what I find is interesting, he spends a lot of time in a lot of his books decrying academics, right? Telling everyone that they're, um, that they're idiots and terrible. But actually he spent, you know, the best part of 10 to 15 years working with academics at the University of Chicago. At that time, um, the there was a sort of movement towards this radical urban ethnography, which was really about embedding knowledge and, sorry, embedding people, sociologists in the city and drawing knowledge sort of from and with the city, really different to positivism, which says, oh, I'm so clever, I'm just going to tell everyone how it works, right? Like this really grounded research. And you can see in in his sort of how he develops um, organising, you can see some of those principles coming from this sort of community of people that that worked in and around the University of Chicago. So Park and Burgess were the were the particular the key mentors there, and so he worked and and lent in to them. At the same time, we had the depression, right? So I mean, even before then, there was a lot of radicalism. The end of World War One, sort of um, the uh, the in even at the same time as the depression, you had sort of the the warring of World War Two. You had the 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 war in Spain. Like there's a lot of geopolitical turmoil as well and you know he's Jewish right so he's quite attentive to what's going on in in Germany and you see it in his books both his books particularly in Reveille he talks a lot about the geopolitics yeah I mean he sees he sees I think it's there's a key point he's and he sees his work very explicitly in kind of anti-fascist it's a form of anti-fascist organizing absolutely and you know and he's trying to understand what it takes to be democratic and doesn't want to sort of rely on fancy phrases it's like democratic as a practice where you you contest and fight for freedom rather than just pronounce it it's you know it's 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 very exciting books in, in in that respect and i'm sure he was like that in um in how he worked as well and then there was also just before the, the moment before he um, went off and set up the back of the arts, two things happened. One was he was involved in these area projects in Chicago. So there were literally, you know, as people go, oh, Industrial Areas Foundation, that's a really sexy name. And it's like, true. It's a bit of a, it's probably not the best name in the universe, but you can understand where it came from. The idea of industrial areas, like these were places 
of incredibly impoverished working conditions and surrounded by ghettos. And that's where he worked. That's where he sought to place himself in this, with a really clear understanding of geography and the geography of impoverishment and the idea that these communities need to work together. The second thing that was going on in Chicago was the rise of the Congress of Industrial Organising and the rise of people like John L. Lewis, who's a magnificent union organiser, um, who, who, you know, turned around what was, um, you know, the union movement was was fairly stagnant, fairly steadish, um, and over a short period of time in the Depression, unions um, exploded partly because of um, his leadership at the CIO. Alinsky ended up writing a biography of, of John. He was um, he was one of his mentors. So you've got all these influences, these sort of his growing up influence, the, the this sort of ra radical academic influence, this unionising influence, and he brought them all into his first project at the back of the yards he brought together churches of lots of different ethnicities who didn't like each other. Like there were, many of them were migrants from different parts of Europe who'd had historic and um, interspace fights, you know what I mean? Like they were hostile. With the union, the Packing House Workers Union was trying to get um, registration at this abattoir and they all miraculously were able to work together, like through this, using this alternative approach of mixing um, this sort of ethnography, this this relational ethnography, this idea of, um, you know, in the Jewish tradition, the idea of a space for, for congregation, for community to hold itself and, um, and union action, you know, like to, to not shy away from union action. And that's, confrontation. Yeah. That, you know, yeah. It, was, it was so radical, right? And that's where it was born. And then Alinsky, um, you know, he set up the IAF in 1940 and danced around the country getting excited, working with people like Fred Ross and Cesar Chavez and going to Rochester and challenging Kodak. And he he sort of promoted this thing at a stratospheric level while others sort of came through and started organising more locally. But but that's where that's where it, you know, the thing that still lives in 98 cities, you know, the IAF has affiliates in 98 cities around the world. It's remarkable that it came out of that experience. And I think that sense of Chicago as a, as a city, the kind of rapid social change you've got urbanization industrialization from the late 19th century through then and and the the part of the urban ethnography uh, kind of analysis was the way people were being um kind of torn up not necessarily torn apart but isolated and atomized in these industrial urban contexts and therefore easily exploitable and they're kind of uh, uh, and then also set against each other in their living you know they would be a, kind of in competition with each other in the workplace and then go back home and being in these kind of ethnic enclaves kind of in competition with each other and Alinsky's view born out of all the multiple kind of influences he's got of actually they're they're they are organized they're just organized by capital or in communities against each other how do you reorganize them so they can form forms of kind of shared action to act on their actual interests rather than against their interests? Identify leaders who are kind of native to those communities and then work with them to address, you know, whether it's the, the poor wages or poor living conditions or the way in which government programs were not being channeled into these poor communities or whatever it was, whatever the kind of real needs were. And I think that 
it is an extraordinary the kind of articulation of that as a possibility and then it's the model of that that emerged in back of yards really was key then to his subsequent work i think it's fair to say that was the it's kind of best organizing moment uh, was was in was in that and, and other people as you say other people did a lot of the organizing work subsequent to that and that's why i think people fell in love with him like reverie for radicals exploded him onto the scene it might it might be that rules for radicals is the thing that lingered but but reverie was this explosion of people are talking about democracy right the world war ii has just finished nazism has just been defeated but but how do we think about practicing democracy now how do we hold onto it still and he had a practice he had a very clear argument about what you do to, to make democracy work and it wasn't it wasn't highfalutin it wasn't academic. It was about this practice of relationship building, of interaction, of holding conflict, of of being able to advocate for your identify your own interests, identify your own leadership. And then the and then the role of an organizer as someone who can support and hold that together. It was it was an extraordinary no one had really ever said it in such clear terms before, I don't think. Yeah, the bit the kind of it's a controversial bit because he, he comments on it in the writing of, of – um, I'm not sure whether it's apocryphal or not, but getting in with the Capone gang. But he certainly studied mm. um, small-scale kind of uh, youth gangs in, in Chicago. But I think one of the key things about his work – and it would be interesting your reflections on that that kind of work. And he worked as a criminologist as well in, in prisons. But he's he's very aware of – he's very committed to forms of self-organization. And that it's you shouldn't always look to the state. I think that's part of his, even though he worked very closely with communist organizers, he's very allergic to any form of authoritarianism or or kind of top-down social engineering programs, whether they're communist or social democratic or whatever they are, or by large corporations. You can think of kind of the Pullman organization in in uh, Chicago, kind of in, in, in that era, um, kind of trying to almost setting up Potemkin villages of capitalism uh, at that time. But he's, so he's, he's looking at, at these gangs, seeing that obviously they got terrible, you know, they're, they're violent, they're, they're kind of manipulating people and exploiting people. But he, they're also a form of, he, one time he calls the Capone gang a public utility uh, company. <laughs> <laughs> it seems as a kind of social welfare, but he's looking at them as forms of how do we, how do we take forms of self-organization built on trust, not turning them to uh, negative, violent ends, or looking at like the Slovak church, the Irish churches, these kind of very tightly organized groups, but turned in on themselves. How do you turn them to a kind of politics of the common good rather than these kind of self-protective? But it's not a turn to the state. It's not a turn to the market. It's how do you work with self-organized leadership in, yeah. in, in pursuit of common goods? Yeah, like there's, it's like how do you create power with? And even though right. I think yeah. actually some of the gangs exercise plenty of power over, right? Like what he's looking, what he's, what he's taking away from that is also that this is a network that's thriving and and independent and has capacity and is not requiring someone else to come in and and make stuff happen. It's like his critique of Hull House, you know, of, of modern social work, where we're an empowered, um, somewhat condescending, if if it's done badly, social worker comes in and treats a client with all of the expertise. He argued, there's nothing emancipatory that comes from that relationship because it reinforces the sense of powerlessness in the person who's seeking help. And he's 
that, I think that's his clearest argument is that actually the, the route to transformation comes from being able to access power. How do you access power? You access it with each other. Mm. And it's I very think, simple. I think that the key thing that comes through in a lot of his writing is it's when you, how, how do we realize individual dignity? It's through forming this shared world with, with others. And it's only when we come together with others can we realize our own individual dignity. Now, my sense is that that really is the heart of the kind of democratic possibility. It's not really about, you know, there's lots of good things like redistributing power, but actually it's about how how do ordinary people realize their agency and dignity through this kind of political action? And in many ways, it's a very ancient, you know, it's an Aristotelian idea of, of politics, but he's kind of He's Aristotle for the people, as it was. How do ordinary mm. people get to do it? It's not just kind of property-owning white men, as it was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. But there's something in it, right? That's this yeah. deep form of participation. If you're in it, if you're in the arena, if you have the resources to be able to advocate for yourself, which probably need requires other forms of support, you know, like the iron rule of organizing is, you know, don't do for others what they can do for themselves, but you've got to make sure that they can still do it for themselves, right? There's two bits to that rule. Resourcing people to be able to 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 battle for themselves is the most dignifying thing that we can do because you can only fight for your own emancipation, you know. You know, you can't fight for someone. Like, you know, when you're fighting for someone else, there's the risk that you're smothering someone else. And he saw that. He saw that and argued for it, you know, in his iconoclastic, somewhat rude temperament. But by arguing for it very clearly, that he sort of set out this distinctive path for for how we can think about democracy. So can you can you say a little bit about kind of the role then of churches in the in this kind of work and how he saw that? Because he he has these very close some people often view his relationship with churches as quite instrumentalizing and sometimes in his writing that can come through. But he has these very close relationships uh, with people like Jack Egan and other key Catholic leaders and works very closely with the Catholic Church and Chicago, obviously key Catholic city as one of the kind of key power bases in there. So just kind of comment on yeah, that. Yeah, the thing that really changed my take on organized religion, actually, and as I was the running, the, you know, being the lead organizer of the Sydney Alliance over a decade, this bit really resonated with me is that the church is where people come together. The church is a congregation of community, you know, in an alienated society, as you were describing earlier, right, like where people are being ripped and divided apart. The church is an anchor for democracy and we can't build democracy. Like we can all, we can stand on a pool, uh, we can stand wherever and, and declare that we need a democracy, but democracy is not going to happen across a million people. Democracy is going to happen in pockets and groups of 30, 100, 1,000 people and that's what the church provides by being a space where smaller numbers of people can come together and find, discover, and exercise leadership, that they can be the, this, these smaller anchors for a larger democracy, you know, what these days is called associational democracy. And I, again, had never thought of it like that, you know. It just was, it just was so striking, the idea that these pockets of democracy sat across our community and that if they were um, enlivened to act on the problems in the community and not just the prop, the the pathway to the afterlife. That actually they could be some of the most powerful organisations um, that we had. Right, right. Can you can you just before I want to kind of turn to the books in a moment, but can you just say in your take and your reading in in Alinsky, and I know you've been kind of deep in the archives recently, but what what do you think is the heart 
of his understanding of democracy. Why does democracy, why is he so committed to democracy and renewing the promise of democracy in America, much, much against its, you know, and he's, he's writing, he writes Reve in 1946. It's, it's, there seems like there's been a lot of threats to demor- democracy, whether it's totalitarianism, war, um, you know, giant corporate power, whatever it is. He is deeply committed to democracy in, in all its aspects. And yeah, so just spell out for a little bit, like what, what do you take to be his, the heart of his vision? You know, it, I, to, you know, I almost feel like, you know, this is me, heretical to be saying this, but, you know, like when communists write, they say the end product is communism, right? Right. For Alinsky, the end product is, is, is like an unfettered, rich, participatory, associational democracy. Like, you know, he at times in, in his writing and, you know, I've listened to some of his podcasts and so, oh, no, they weren't called podcasts, they're radio shows, I think you'd call right. them, um, where he talks about these questions and he, and he talks about how the past really was, ba- you know, let's not think that fe- romanticise feudalism, let's not romanticise the past. Similarly, let's not, let's remember what happened in, in Nazi Germany, let's remember what happened um, and let's look at what's happening under a sort of unfettered capitalism. And so he sort of sees democracy, this practice of people being able to actually exercise tools to make their lives better and to reach, not just to do it personally, but to reach across difference and make that happen for, for you know, whether it was for across black and white communities, particularly in Chicago by the time rules was created, uh, written, um, that I feel like he sort of thinks that that that's as good as it gets. You don't get perfection. There is no utopia. What you need is a, is the space for a battleground and the resources to be able to fight within it, and that's how the have-nots have a chance. And the risk is is that the have-nots fight too well for too long, they become haves, and so someone else is going to fight the have-nots, but that, that battleground at least is a sort of civilising battleground and, and, can, and he sort of sees that I think he sort of thinks that that is as that's the ideal. That's what we need, and then his work then becomes on what are the skills and the knowledge and the the, the roles, the institutions, and the people that are required to be able to sort of resource that battleground to work. Yeah, I think that exactly that sense of democracy. The heart of democracy for him is a sense that ordinary people should have some say and agency in determining their living and working conditions. That's always going to be a conflictual. There's always going to be conflicts of interests. That's always a fight for the have-nots to have a little more and to bring some kind of discipline and stop concentrations of power. And that then through that process, people actually do discover their dignity and, and realize themselves in the world with others. And so there's this, all of that, there's both a kind of beauty and a conflict and a tragic sense of it's, you know, you're always in the fight. And if you ever think you've resolved it, you've probably something's gone horribly wrong. That's right. Like my favorite quote in Rules for Radicals is the one where he talks about climbing up the mountain, right? And he says, you know, that, that being, being a leader, being an organizer is like climbing up a mountain and you think you get there, right? You've just, you've just won this amazing victory and then the clouds part and actually the mountain goes up and then you climb on up. It's this idea it's the process of fighting is the purpose that's it it's not some eventual nirvana it's the struggle that 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 is the most dignified act and i think against a lot of what might say kind of progressive visions it isn't 
he doesn't have a sense of progress. Things can go backwards, things can get worse. Unless you're struggling, unless you're fighting, you know, then things can get a lot, lot worse. And he kind of see, he can see that historically. He's seen Germany collapse into chaos. He's seen what's happened of the Soviet Union into Stalinism. He's, he's seen all that historically and seen someone like Chicago, the horror of, of the back of yards. And, and that was, you know, it was terrible, terrible working and living conditions. And that, that sense of your, you're not, history isn't going to deliver you by some innate process, uh, 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 you know, the world of the beloved community, you've, you've got to come together with others to make life better for yourself. And that, and that is key. Yeah. And I think that's why say rules for radical in particular, um, is so argumentative about strategy. Like it's a book about strategy. It's argumentative about strategy because there's actually so much to lose. Like he gets so worked up about yippies and young activists, but then at the at the at the end piece of those sections where he's all heated up and attacked everyone forever, he goes, "But you're the hope of the future. This is just so right. important, right?" Like right. his yeah. heart is in it. He's just he just sees that the strategy, like how we do this battle, matters just so very much. Hmm. I think I think that's a very good point there that he can hold part of this is it isn't you know this is all, you know no permanent ends no permanent enemies but that that kind of loses something I think of Elinsky's approach where he can hold seemingly contradictory views of people so he's a Jewish man organizing largely anti-Semitic Catholic communities in the back of yards, who he knows is a very famous radio broadcaster, the kind of Rush Limbaugh of his day called Father Coughlin. And Coughlin has this huge radio following. He's a fascist sympathizer, massively popular show. He knows most of the people he's trying to work with are listening to Father Coughlin and are, as I said, deeply anti-Semitic. And at the same time, he so he can know all of that, Go and build relationship with them. He's not condemning them as a basket of deplorables, but he's well aware of where a lot of the people's sympathies lie. And he can see them as the future of democracy. And both of those things can be true. And I think that is a very, you know, we tend to have these very Manichaean divided up into strict friends and enemies. And we know who the goodies are, we know who the baddies are, and we like the world neatly divided up. And I think. What Alinsky is, and it comes through in his writing, people have multiple loyalties, they're pulled different ways. We ourselves are all conflicted and full of contradictions. And that's just where you've got to meet people. Like they can be lovely to you and then come out with a racist slur or be a deeply anti-Semitic comment in the next sentence. And what are you going to, you know, like, can you work with people to build shared democracy or are you just going to pre-condemn people into some ideological checklist, which if they fit, then they're good. If they don't fit, then they're bad. And I think he's very allergic to that kind of ideological checklisting. Yeah. And look, and I love that the IF holds that by, you know, you can't you can't change someone if you're not in a relationship. You know, like <clears throat> I like we teach that in in training. I've had that taught to me in training. And, you know, that idea that, you know, get as angry as you want about whomever you want you probably won't change them unless you're in relationship. You know, it carries that idea through, yeah. yeah. So, so a little bit about the kind of overarching argument of the, like we've talked about it, but, what, you know, what, what goes on in the book. And some of the, it's full of stories. That's what I love. That's in many ways why I prefer 
Reveille two rules. It's got these fantastic stories. What what role do the stories play in in the book? And and what is something of the kind of arc of the book? Yeah. So the book, you know, I think what's really interesting, like some people make this sort of, and I'm I'm, I'm going to slightly not directly answer your question because I want to link Reveille for radicals to to rules for radicals. Like sometimes people um, make this sort of, oh, they're completely different texts. What I noticed is a lot of the principles that are really explicitly run and more clearly run, to be honest, in in Rules for Radicals. I mean, Rules for Radicals is like a training text. It is so clearly articulated, the sort of um, the key concepts that are now um, sort of famously understood in in Industrial Areas Foundation, community organising, teaching, you know, power, self-interest, action, reaction, like they're really very vividly outlined and the idea of tension and the tension between different dynamics rather than a, a single answer is dynamically and brilliantly outlined in rules. Most of those ideas are actually present in in Reveille as well. You know, they're just less, um, they're just, they're just, hit you over the head a little less. They're not headings, right? So the idea of world as it is, world as it should be, which is one of the fundamental tensions, is there. It's in the setup for for Reveille for Radicals. Um I think it, which I think is interesting. And you know, I'm being a bit diffuse in my answer, not giving you the precise um quick summary, but even things part of me wonders, and I, and you might know the answer, whether he met or read um the work of Hannah Arendt. Um, whether by possibly not by this point, but he because he's uh, he, he almost couldn't have because she only came to the US at about the time that Reveille came out. But he makes an argument at the top of the book about the relationship of in between, which is core to her work. It's core to his work. It's uh, it's 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 haunting how interestingly similar these sort of you know Arendt being this huge democratic theorist and him being a huge democratic practitioner who also is well read how they're making very similar arguments possibly having not even read each other's work is is really is really interesting i mean look reveille is a book about he makes the argument that ha- how to build people's organizations really that's why i fell in love with it and decided to, i wanted to build one too and then he presents this um uh, upside down theory about how to do it you know so he he articulates for instance things like oh you need a program and then he goes, you need a program of building relationships with people, not a program of action, sorry, not a program of issues. And the only way you find the issues is to talk to people, right? So it's this hilarious, um, uh, like the reader leans in assuming it's going in one direction and then get push, gets pushed back by the text, go, oh, I, that, that happened differently to how I anticipated. Then the book um, moves through the key principles. Like, again, the key principles of organising that are laid down later, like the idea of of, of leadership and local leadership, um, which, you know, was what in some ways what set Reveille apart at the time. It was just that was not an argument that people were making around political political movements. They were talking about issues. They were talking about programs of issues. They weren't talking about how to build leaders and um community organizations and their traditions and the role of leadership inside them. So he sort of sets these points up and then and then challenges them. You can see in the book he moves to questions around methods. He spends quite a lot of time talking about methods, again, which is clear in the other book, but, but it's all present here, about the role of tactics. And he has some 
hilariously silly and somewhat troubling stories about what organizers should be doing, right? Like I would never have done any of these things. Part of me goes, if you can't organize someone to do something by just saying it straight, then go on and find a better leader. Like, you know what I mean? Like, you know, like he's really is pushing the envelope about, um, about what people are capable of. Cause he's saying that people present with, uh, you know, he talks about, at length about the sort of psychological effects of alienation and defensiveness and um, inertia that come from having no power. And he says as an organiser, it's capable of moving through that, that you can challenge people to move through that. And that, even though I wouldn't necessarily apply his methods, that argument is really profound, I think, that that actually we are better, bigger than we can seem ourselves to be and we can be challenged to do huge things and actually – um, democracy is about our friends and colleagues and others inviting, seeing something bigger in us and inviting us into that space. You know, that's what he's arguing for. It's and that is um, is powerful. And I think the 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 part of also these stories function like these stories. Like there's a funny story about Big Jim and Honest John, various kind of shady characters who change through the process of organising. But they but the stories of change are key. They they are kind of. I would see them as conversion stories that people democracy is premised on the idea that people can change. The question is what quality and character of relationships and processes of relating enable people to change. And that's, but the idea that people are always fixed or they're just a bundle of ideological commitments or they can only be one kind of thing and they're defined or reducible to that one kind of thing. That's part of what these stories are narrating for us is seeing people, and he tells us, I think it's the big gym story where he's basically a gangster who owns all the betting shops and the teenagers are going spending their parents' money in the betting shops. And eventually he kind of gets, um, you know, Jim to change through, a, <laughs> as you say, kind of manipulative tricksterish. I would say tricksterish process rather than a manipulative process. Sure, um, <laughs> I'm going to go for the hard words because that's what you're going to go for the hard words, do, right? Remember, I'm going for the trick. But it, but it's, but it's a sense in which everyone's saying you can't be in relationship with Big Jim. He's this terrible figure, and I think part of that story is functioning. Say, even a Big Jim, seemingly this authoritarian personality who's doing all these terrible things in the community, even a big gym can become an agent of democratic possibility. And if we can't see people as capable of that change, if we just reduce them to they're a criminal or they're a, you know, terrible kind of right wing, whatever, we we lose, we we've we've actually given up on democracy already. Um and I think that's a that is it's that that does seem to be a kind of subtext to the, a lot of. I love stories. how you've redeemed that. That's beautiful. But I actually do agree. I do agree that because he makes those arguments in rules as well, but he doesn't use the stories. And the idea that you can actually see through a story, and we all know, like organisers, we love testimony. We 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 lift up testimony and story because we know that it's how people can we can see it into each other's hearts. And and he does, yeah. And it is a powerful thing to be able to display how people are capable of change because that is the i mean that's the that's why the word self-interest is powerful because he talks extensively about self your change your interests change through experience so therefore everyone is capable of change therefore um 
a democracy is possible, no matter where we start, because of that possibility. Mm. You, what, so you've drawn some of the parallels between rules for radicals and reveille for radicals. What, what do you think are some of the contrasts, either in tone or in approach? I think Reveille is it's a great story. It's um, it's 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 rhetorical. It's sort of an emotional plea for democratic action, and it's a more co- in some ways it's a more coherent book. Rules is a series of dis- very separate chapters that are distinct arguments. I think for people who are interested in the holistic idea of people's organisations, maybe with you know noting the historical context, Reveille is more of a is a book to read or reread. Rules is a I'm in it. How can I? How can I be challenged to think um, think differently about what I'm doing? That's the book for you. Right. No, it's very very helpful. I think that's exactly. I, no, I think it's a very good account of how they get used. Or, or there's sometimes lament that people don't read Reveille as much as they do rules <laughs> because I think the stories and the broader democratic vision that's at work. There, it's more. It, it's more anchored in a broader vision. Crucially, I think what he makes explicit there, which I I worry always gets slightly lost in rules, which can tend to be read very instrumentally in in a kind of utilitarian way, almost mechanistically, even though I think the rules themselves, in this to kind of draw on a Hannah Arendt term, but the rules are there to to force you to think about shared action and what you're doing in organising there. They're pro- provoking thought rather than what do we do when we're angry? We go to the streets and we protest, like as if that's just a, a script somehow we got off our news feed. And the rules are there to make you stop and think about, okay, what are we trying to do? How are we going to do it? Who are we going to act with? It, it, they're, 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 they're kind of guide rails for good thinking about shared action. But I think the Reve book is much clearer on democracy is about human dignity and and building that up and how do we actually realize that in practice in a way in which i worry that kind of almost humanistic focus of the the honoring and cherishing the dignity of each person gets gets lost slightly in the rules frame of reference to just i'm kind of interested like you've You've drawn on Litsky, you've actually been in the trenches and formed a community organizing coalition from the ground up in a very different cultural context in some ways than the one it was born in. You've then moved on and, and been involved in other forms of democratic initiative and experimentation. Um, what, like, kind of, what do you see now, some of the limitations of, of Alinsky's approach and some of the things you've learned since being involved and in, 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 in being involved in other kinds of organising work? Mm, it's a big question. So a few things, <laughs> you know, like it would be crazy to not think that there were limits, right? So I th- one of the reflection I had was, you know, ran the Alliance for nine years and it was spectacular and we did things really differently to the US. You know, it's the advantage of being in the Antipodes, like – People don't notice if you experiment a little. Um, and we did. We had a different array of organisations. We we played with different ideas of scale in the city, trying to work out how to how to make it work. Don't worry, we did most of the things as per, <laughs> as per you know. I'm but, all for experimentation. Uh, well, I felt like it was necessary for in the context. But even then, even with us playing, I still felt that, we weren't achieving 
what what we needed to to actually make enough change. Like, um, and I didn't feel like a slightly tinkering with the rules was going to actually fix it. Like that that I I didn't actually know what the answer was. And my work um, doing research on like this question on people power in cities. Uh, I guess one of the conclusions I've come to is that to see organising as one of five different forms of people power and organising as a magnificent and strong form of people power that is particularly um, particularly capable when it comes to developing leaders and allowing people to work across difference. But it is actually just one form of people power that people use. So we've studied cities across the world and identified these five forms, so playing by the rules, um, you know, using the rules of liberal democracy where they exist to advance your your needs, um, mobilizing, big demonstrations, reactive, um, organizing them prefigurative. So establishing for, you know, prefiguring is to sort of model the change that you want in real life. Oh goodness, we really need affordable housing. Cool. We're going to occupy a building and create affordable housing, that kind of thing. And then the fifth is parties and political parties. And so all of them have strengths and limits. And and I love it because sometimes um, organisers will go, oh, we do all those things, and it's like, calm down. Like, no, you don't. That's that's you don't want to say that because that would suggest that if you're everything, you're nothing. Actually, organising is a really particular, brilliant craft that has extraordinary strengths, but it's never going to have um, the scale capacity of a, of a mobilisation, and that's fine. What we could do is build, we're really good at relationships. Let's build relationships with people who are good at mobilizing. So, in certain moments when it happens, that we could join together and have organizing connected with mobilizing, right? The second thing that relates to the question of the limits of the limits of organizing is that I think that there are two challenge two, I think the two biggest challenges that people interested in social change have at the moment are scale and identity. And scale in terms of how do we how do we make our change um, more impactful, but not necessarily think that that requires us to have a, a mega global rally. Like I'm not suggesting that, right? Like, or let's let's get some uh, a hashtag that trends on Twitter for two days. No, I'm not suggesting that. But how do we how do we obtain big a bigger presence? Um, is a huge challenge, and then I, and then identity is a challenge. Just on the question of scale, I've done some work thinking about different routes to scale, and thinking about scale as both something that's about speed, slow, fast, as well as um, geography, small, big, and um, and when you do that, you actually can identify where um, or- organizing has great strengths. Like, and people are going to hate that on slow, s- slow, small work, organizing is better than anything. And actually all other forms of scale require slow, slow, small to work, right? So that's one. The second is also that you don't need to be organized everywhere to have um, national scale. Sometimes um, uh, small goes to big when you're organized in the right spot. So um, I'm just trying to think of an example that's based in the US. But um, well, for instance, like what's going on at Starbucks? right? You're organized at a couple of work sites, you win them, all of a sudden the whole country is thinking about that question. Yeah. Or, or the Amazon work in, 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 yeah. in Staten Island, right? You're, you don't need to be everywhere to, to gain great attention. And so I think there's, there's something in it for us. And that's the back of yards. That was the, ba- that was the back exactly. of yards. Organizing exactly. that suddenly became a national 
it had a national impact because of where if you'd done it in North Dakota, I don't think it would have no, had the same. That's right. That's right. Excellent. Amanda, thank you so much. That was such a great conversation and great to have the got onto the Australian kind of Antipodean context and the American context and see the kind of traversing, but also the, the, the differences. But really appreciate you uh, talking to me today. That was fantastic for me too. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining me for this episode of the Listen, Organize, Act podcast, in which I explore the foundational influence that Saul Alinsky's had on community organizing, as well as his distinct vision of democratic politics. This podcast is sponsored by the Keenan Institute for Ethics at Duke University. And as with other episodes, you can download readings directly relevant to the episode from the website. That's www.ormancenter.com backslash listen-organize-act-podcast. For now, let me say goodbye. And I hope you join me next time for the part two of this exploration of Alinsky as a democratic theorist. (laughs) 